Well, good morning, folks. Glad you all are here. Why don't you grab your Bibles at this point in time with me and uh, turn to Genesis. Easy to find, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis uh, chapter 2 is where we'll be starting. Uh, However, we will be really throughout many, many uh, scriptures in the Bible. So if you want to uh, start in Genesis 2 and uh, try to keep up with me as we go along, or if that becomes too much, you can certainly look at the screen behind me. Well, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, If you weren't with us this past Sunday, let me just briefly catch you up with a conversation that we began last Sunday. Last week, the elders and the deacons and myself began to present to the church a set of proposed additions to the church's constitution. So we are proposing uh, eight additional statements. Six of those statements are doctrinal in nature. That is, they uh, are our attempt to summarize what the Scripture says in six key areas. In fact, the six areas uh, that we're suggesting uh, be amended or or added to uh, refer to uh, marriage, sexual immorality, gender identity, celibacy, divorce, and redemption. So this morning, we're going to cover three of those proposed uh, uh, statements. We'll be talking about marriage, divorce, and redemption. Uh, Next Sunday, we'll cover the additional three. In addition to those six statements, we are proposing that two other additions, uh, additional statements be added. Those additional statements are governmental in nature. That is, they deal with the functioning of the church. Uh, We will talk about those next Sunday as well. So all of that has been provided for you in several ways. Uh, We have those proposed additions at the Welcome Center. So please, please grab those. You can see it in a one-page format. You can see it uh, in the midst of our Constitution as well. We emailed them out. Uh, There's all sorts of ways you can uh, access that. Now, last Sunday, uh, we did uh, a really pivotal introduction to these particular statements. So we talked about the nature of the proposed additions, and we focused most of our attention last week on the reason behind them. That is, why are we suggesting these proposed additions? Uh, The bulk of our time was spent on that. We also answered some anticipated, frequently asked questions. I tried my best to anticipate questions or concerns, and I tried my best then to address those last Sunday. So if you weren't here last Sunday, let me encourage you. There is a copy of the sermon that I gave last Sunday at the Welcome Center. So there's a hard copy. Pick it up if you, if you want. Also, uh, we sent that out and made it available via email. So if you're on our email list, you had that accessible. If you aren't on our email list and you want to be, come see me. We can easily do that. As well as uh, the audio sermon is on iTunes. So if you have iTunes on your, on your computer or on your smartphone, simply look at Grace Bible Church Cisna Park. Uh, And then you can access that sermon there as well. Let me just stress that it's very important that we understand the background to the proposed additions that we're talking about. So please, please uh, make yourself available with those. So with that being said, let's uh, take a look at our Bibles and let's begin by looking at three additional statements that we are proposing. A statement on marriage, a statement on divorce, and a statement on redemption. So Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to begin We will be all over the place in the scriptures, so uh, keep up if you can. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, it is a privilege for us to come together under the lordship of our our Savior and and great God and King, Jesus Christ, to come to you, our Father, in prayer. It is a privilege to call you our Father and to be your sons and daughters. And we come to you only in the name and through the person and work of your Son, Jesus, who has redeemed us, 
through uh, his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, defeating death and sin and Satan, offering us eternal life and a reconciliation with you that we could know you and be adopted into your family and that this free gift is offered to us through faith and faith alone. It's not earned, it's not merited. You simply offer it to us and we receive it through repentance and faith. And it is a great salvation that we anticipate uh, being uh, reminded of as we look forward to sharing communion together, being reminded that his, his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Father, as we do that, we pray that you would be with us. And as we look now at these uh, proposed additions, Lord, we pray that they would be in line with your word, in line with your will, and that you would help me to speak clearly and to explain them well for your glory and for the good of this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said together, amen. Well, let's begin by looking at our proposed statement on marriage. You can see it on the screen behind me. I'll read it, and then we will work our way through it. This is what we write. Quote, We believe that marriage is the permanent, exclusive, comprehensive, and conjugal one-flesh union of one man and one woman, intrinsically ordered to procreation and biological family and in furtherance of the moral, spiritual, and public good of binding father, mother, and progeny. And then we list several scripture references. So let's begin to work our way through this. What do we mean when we say these words? Well, we begin our statement on marriage by stating that it is fundamentally a union. It is fundamentally a union. That is, it is a coming together or a uniting of two people. And the Bible calls the union of marriage a covenant. It speaks of, of, of marriage in, in covenantal terms. Let's take a look at the first text behind me. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, we see God calling out unfaithful Jewish husbands. Unfaithful Jewish husbands. But notice the terminology that he uses to speak of their marriages. Verse 14, you ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. He says, you have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner. Notice this, the wife of your marriage covenant. So here we see uh, clearly in Scripture that this union that we speak of is a, is a covenant union. In fact, as we look now at Genesis 2.24, which hopefully you have before you, we see that covenantal language is used in the seminal passage on marriage. If you want to learn about God's view of marriage, you have to begin in Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 and here Genesis 2.24. When Jesus and when Paul speaks about marriage, they always go back to God's design here in Genesis 2.24. Here we see God's design for marriage as he comments on the, the, the new union of Adam and Eve. It reads this way. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This term here in the NIV, it's, it's translated to be united to. Your translation might say to cling to. This is covenantal language. Throughout the Old Testament, this same term is used to speak of Israel's covenant relationship with God. They are united to him. They, they are to cling to the covenant that they have with God, revealing to us that this marriage that we're speaking of, that's being referred to, it's a covenant union. 
Well, what then characterizes this union or this covenant of marriage? We use four different adjectives, four different words to describe the type of union that marriage is. First of all, we say it is a permanent union. We believe that marriage is the permanent union. That is, it is intended to be an enduring and a perpetual union until death do us part. We see this clearly in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 2, we see Paul using this, this example, uh, this ideal of marriage lasting a lifetime to describe uh, that, that, that Christians who have died to law-based obedience are dead to the Old Testament law. But just notice the illustration here. It affirms what we're speaking of. Romans 7.2 says this, For example, by law, a married woman, he writes, is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So first of all, we see that this covenant union of marriage is intended to be permanent. Second, we write that marriage is intended also to be exclusive. It's intended to be exclusive. That is, it is meant to be monogamous. It is meant to be monogamous. We clearly see this from God's original design. So if you have before you Genesis 2, you can look there again. In Genesis 2.24, we see that uh, the singular term, man and wife, are used. Man and wife, right? That is why a man, singular, leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, singular, affirming that marriage is not only permanent, but it is exclusive. It is a monogamous relationship. One man, one woman. Third, marriage, we write, is meant to be comprehensive. Marriage is the permanent, exclusive, and then we write <coughs> comprehensive union. And what we simply mean by that is that marriage is far-reaching. It is far-reaching. Again, when we look to Genesis 2.24, we, <coughs> we see that marriage culminates in what the scripture calls uh, becoming one flesh, right? That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, certainly, this refers to a, a sexual union. There's no doubt about that, but scholars uh, suggest that this also speaks to a deeper unity. In other words, when we get married, we are joined with our spouse spiritually, we are joined with our spouse economically. We are joined with our spouse logistically. We are united to our spouse experientially and, of course, sexually as well. And so it is a, it is a permanent union. It is a, an exclusive union. And it is a comprehensive union that encompasses all of our life. Fourth, we write that marriage is a, is a conjugal one flesh union, which simply means it is intended to be a sexual union. And not only that, but is the prescribed place for sexual activity, the only prescribed place for sexual activity that is pleasing to God. It is a one flesh union where a man and a woman come together sexually as well. So we believe that marriage is the permanent, exclusive, comprehensive, and conjugal one flesh union, one flesh covenant. Next, we affirm that marriage is this. It's a union of one man and one woman. 
That is, marriage is heterosexual by design. It is heterosexual by design. When we get back to Genesis, we clearly see this. Way back in Genesis 2, 24, which we've been referencing, we see that marriage clearly is meant to be a union between a man and a woman. That is, marriage is meant to be complementary. It is a complementary union, a coming together of two different genders. Back in Genesis 1, we see that God told Adam and Eve in their marriage to procreate and to rule over the earth. God commanded it of them. And of course, procreation is contingent upon uh, a heterosexual union. So Genesis, I think, clearly states here and in other places of scripture that marriage is, is heterosexual by design, by definition. So that brings us to two final phrases that, uh, that uh, is, is found in our definition. We believe that marriage is the permanent, exclusive, comprehensive, and conjugal one-flesh union of one man and one woman. And then we, we add this. Intrinsically ordered to procreation and biological family, and in the furtherance of the moral, spiritual, and public good of binding father, mother, and progeny. These two phrases that uh, conclude our definition on marriage speak to one of the intended purposes of marriage. One of the intended purposes of marriage in two different, two different phrases. The first phrase, which you can see on the screen behind me, behind me all, we, all we mean is this. We simply mean that marriage, uh, that, that, uh, that marriage inherent, an inherent or built-in part of marriage, is the possibility of having children. The possibility of having children and forming a family. That is, marriage and children are designed by God to go together. By the second phrase, we mean that when a family unit, a father and a mother and a child, remain intact, that it is for the moral, spiritual, and public betterment of a society. That's what we mean by those two phrases. And we see this connection between marriage and family very clearly in Scripture. In Genesis 1, verse 28. Genesis 1.28 refers to the first marriage, and we see this in Scripture. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rather, uh, rule over the fish of the sea and the, and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So clearly we see in Scripture that God has designed uh, uh, marriage and family, parents and kids. And so that is our proposed definition addition on marriage. Having looked at that, let's now take a look for a few moments at our statement on divorce. That is when marriage covenants are broken. When marriage covenants are broken. We can't rightly speak of marriage and not speak of divorce biblically. So here's our statement. You can read it behind me. And then uh, similarly, we'll, we'll work our way through it. We write this. We believe that marriage is the conjugal one flesh marital union of one man and one woman and should rightfully last until the death of the husband or the wife. Because of the sinfulness of this mankind, we recognize that divorce is permitted as a concession. But we believe that it should always be an action of last resort. We believe that divorce, except in the instances of spousal infidelity, which includes but is not limited to Adultery, Matthew 19, abuse, Exodus chapter 21, and abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, should not be pursued within members of the congregation. So let's work our way through this proposed definition. So what we do to begin with is we basically 
restate a portion of our definition on marriage, right? You can clearly see that. We believe that marriage is the conjugal one flesh marital union of one man and one woman. And then we add what we've just talked about, and that is that it should rightfully last until the death of the husband or the, the wife. And after we do that, what we do is we, we begin by addressing what Scripture deems to be and speaks of the underlying cause of all divorce. We believe that marriage is the conjugal one flesh marital union of one man and one woman and should rightfully last until the death of the husband or wife. And then we, we say this. Because of the sinfulness of this mankind. And by stating this, what we're trying to do is mirror what Jesus speaks about the underlying cause of divorce. I think Jesus reveals this to us when he answers the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19. So if you want to turn there, we'll be camping on this uh, just for a little bit. Matthew chapter 19. So you can go from your Old Testament to your New Testament, the very first uh, book in your New Testament, Matthew 19. There we get a very vital interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees on the subject of divorce. And there in Matthew 19, Jesus is answering the Pharisees' question regarding God's permission of divorce found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So let's begin reading in verse 7 of uh, Matthew 19. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're asking a question about Deuteronomy 24. They deem it there that... uh, that God commanded a man, if he was displeased with his wife, in context of verse 3, they thought for any reason at all to give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But, he says, it was not this way from the beginning. Now notice that the Pharisees thought they took Deuteronomy 24.1 as a command for a man to divorce his wife, in their words, back in verse 3, for any and every reason at all. They thought God commanded it under that circumstance. But notice what Jesus says about it. He says, Moses permitted you. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Here we see that Jesus explains that divorce is a concession. It is a concession by God in that it it doesn't accurately reflect his will for marriage and creation, but rather it reveals the hardness of human hearts, the the sinfulness or the fallenness of of creation and, and all of humanity. Not only does our statement then identify divorce's root cause, but it helps us see it, I think, like Jesus told us to see it, as a concession, as a concession not a command, as a last resort. So, how then should Christians treat marriage and divorce? How shall we see it? Well, we write these words back to our definition. We believe that divorce, except in the instances of spousal infidelity, which includes, but is not limited to, adultery, abuse, and abandonment, should not be pursued within the members of the congregation. 
So we begin with what we feel is Scripture's normative teaching on the subject matter of divorce. And we do it in the first phrase and the last phrase. And then in between, we talk about the concessions or the exceptions. And we do this for a reason. When we see Jesus talking about divorce, and when we see Paul talking about the subject matter, what they do is they say, this is God's ideal. Right? This is the general rule that followers of Christ are to follow. And then they talk about the exceptions. And so we wanted to mirror this particular pattern. So let's look at a couple of passages. First is in Matthew 19, which is what we're in. And then the second is 1 Corinthians 7. In both of these passages, both Jesus and Paul, respectively, begin by teaching the norm for followers of Christ. This is the rule, if you will. And then they talk about possible exceptions to that rule. We want to do the same. So, let's take a look then at verse 3 of Matthew 19. Here we see the rule that Jesus gives in response to their question. Verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So they bring up an issue of divorce. Their reading of Deuteronomy chapter 24. One particular group of Jews of that day thought that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. And so they ask Jesus to comment on this. And notice what Jesus does. He begins with the rule. He begins with the rule, if you will. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2. He always goes back to God's design. Verse 6. So, he says, there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let no man separate. See, here Jesus is commenting. There was a question in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. There was a question of the day, and the rabbis disagreed. There was a statement in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 24 that said that, that, that a man could divorce his wife if he found some indecency in her. And so the debate was raging. What is that indecency? What What does that mean? And one particular group said, well, that means anything and everything at all. And that's reflected in their question. And so, instead of addressing this possible exception first, what does Jesus do? He talks about the norm. He goes back to creation. Secondly, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So keep turning to the end of your Bible and your New Testament. You'll go through the Gospels. You'll go through the book of Acts. And you will find the book of 1 Corinthians Uh, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We see when Paul addresses issues of marriage and divorce in the Corinthian church there in chapter 7, he follows the exact same pattern. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll take a look at verses 10 and 11. Paul writes this, "To To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And then he says this, A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So again, both with Jesus and with Paul, he says, this is the normative teaching for followers of Christ. And we want to address that in the first line of our our statement and the last. So you could read it this way. We believe that divorce 
dot, 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 leave out the middle, should not be pursued within members of the congregation. We feel this is an accurate representation of Jesus and Paul. But now we want to go to the exceptions, and that's found in the middle of our statement. So we also write this. We believe that divorce... Except, and so now we get to the exceptions with both, which both Paul and Jesus talk about. Except in the instances of spousal infidelity, which includes, but is not limited to, adultery, abuse, and abandonment. So, let's talk about these, this middle statement here. As we examine the scriptures, we see three specific forms of spousal infidelity, if you will, in which case divorce is biblically permissible. So let's quickly walk through these three. First is the, uh, the event of adultery or sexual immorality by one's spouse. Back in Matthew 19, if you want to turn there, you can promise we'd be uh, flipping back and forth. There in Matthew 19, remember Jesus has said, this is the norm, right? This is the norm for followers of mine. But then he addresses, he addresses the exception. In Matthew 19, verse, uh, verse 9, Jesus says this, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except. So here is a biblical exception. Except for, and the Greek word is pornea, pornea, sexual immorality. And it refers to a whole host of of sexual sins, of sex outside of marriage, including adultery and many other things. He says, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So we see a first biblical exception of sexual immorality or adultery by one's spouse. We see a second And we see it in 1 Corinthians 7. I promise we'd be going back and forth. 1 Corinthians 7, as we head back to what Paul has said. Remember, Paul has laid out in verses 10 and 11. This is the the, the norm, right? This is the biblical norm, if you will. Uh, This is the rule that I give to, to Christians. But then he also gives some exceptions. And we see this scenario played out in verses 12 through 16. And it's the scenario, the exception of what we call permanent abandonment permanent abandonment of the marriage by one's spouse by enacting or pursuing divorce. So let's see Paul paint this scenario in verses 12 through 16. He paints a picture of, of, a, of, a, of a Christian who is abandoned by their spouse, that is, divorced by their spouse, and they are a Christian, but their spouse is not a Christian, and so they pursue divorce. Let's start reading in verse 12. To the rest, I say this, I not the Lord, Paul says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Again, following his, you know, exactly what he said in verses 10 and 11. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. He gives some reasons why. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now notice this, verse 15. But, but if the unbeliever leaves, this is language of divorce in the Roman culture. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. 
the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, he says, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? See, in, in Roman culture, divorce was, was rather easy. You really didn't even need a certificate of divorce. If you were a husband and you wanted to divorce your wife, you simply left the household. You left. You moved to another city. You were gone. And that was divorce. And so Paul uses this language here to speak of the permanent abandonment of the marriage by one's spouse. And he says, clearly, under those circumstances, the other spouse that has been abandoned uh, is, is permitted to pursue divorce in that circumstance. Well, there's a third, we believe. Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. Adultery, abuse, and abandonment. And the third is abuse or what I would deem life-threatening neglect or life-threatening behavior by one's spouse. This one needs a little explanation. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 21. Again, we're going all over the place, but let's turn to our Old Testament. You find Genesis first, and then you get the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. And we will be looking at Exodus chapter 21, uh, specifically at verses 10 and 11, although the context begins, oh, at about verse 6 or 7, if you will. Let me paint a scenario here that we see played out in Exodus chapter 21. It's a scenario that would play out in the ancient world. And uh, God, through Moses, is addressing how his people should uh, live in this particular scenario. So in context, what we see is that God is talking about the rights and the laws regarding how Israelites, the Jewish people, were to treat their fellow Jewish slaves. That is, if an Israelite had, uh, had a slave and that slave was also a fellow Israelite, how were they to treat that particular slave? That's the, the general context, uh, context of Exodus chapter 21. Then, starting in verse 7, we see a scenario being painted. And this scenario uh, begins in verse 7, and, and it's something like this. There is a, a, a scenario where a Jewish man would buy a female Jewish slave in order to make her his wife or to keep her as a wife for his son. This is the scenario that's being painted in chapter 21. This was not uncommon in the ancient Near East, and uh, unfortunately it was not uncommon uh, in the nation of Israel as well. And so God says, if, if this were to happen, if a Jewish man were to buy a Jewish female slave in order to make her his wife or to, to save her for one of his sons, then verse 10 says this. Verse 10 says, in that scenario, that that man should not deprive uh, this woman, if he takes her to be his wife, and then later marries another woman. Notice what verse 10 says. If he takes her to be his wife, and then decides to take another wife. Verse 10 tells us that he must not deprive his first wife, the one that he purchased, from three things. Food, clothing, and conjugal rights. Now let's take a look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. If he marries another woman, He must not deprive the first one of her food, number one, her clothing, number two, and her marital or conjugal rights. Now notice what God is doing here. He is protecting this first wife. He is protecting this slave wife because obviously to be deprived of food and to be deprived of clothing would would threaten what? 
It would threaten her very livelihood, would it not? It would threaten her very body in the present. But not only in the present, but notice, what else is he not to withhold from her? Marital or conjugal rights. That would have ensured her future needs would be met. Because see, in those days, they didn't have social security, right? So for a woman in that culture, if she was denied the, the, the possibility of having children, then those children wouldn't be able to care for her in her old age. So here's what was going on. God was prohibiting that this husband treat her in such a way that her present life and livelihood would be threatened, and even her future livelihood would be threatened. So, her life was threatened by the actions of the husband in this particular case. So, if that happens, what does verse 11 say? Verse 11 tells us that if the man does this, that she can literally, she can go out. The NIV translates it, she can go free. The language is, is literally, she can go out. It is language in some instances of divorce, and I take that to mean such. I think if that is the case, if her livelihood is being threatened, then she can go out. She can ask for a certificate of divorce, and she can be done, and without... Notice what verse 11 adds, without having to repay what the man bought her for. So verse 11 reads this way. If he does not provide her with, with these three things, she is to, to literally go out. She is to go free. I think it's language of divorce. Without payment of money. So here we see in this scenario, a, a, a scenario where a husband is acting neglectfully towards his wife or even in a way that her, her life is threatened. And that, I think, is a third biblical permission, concession for a spouse pursuing divorce. And that is how our statement reads. So, we've seen our statement on marriage. We've seen our statement on divorce. Let's end with our statement on redemption. Our statement on redemption. Let's read it together. It reads this way. We believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, redemption, forgiveness, and spiritual cleansing is available for all sins. We will welcome into membership and endeavor to treat with respect, compassion, and sensitivity all who have practiced sinful behavior in the past. Friends, that's all of us. But are now committed to resisting the temptation to engage in immoral acts. So let's work our way through this in preparation for sharing in communion. It's a fitting theme. So, we begin our sermon, uh, we end our sermon here on the subject of redemption. And I think it's, it's an appropriate way for us to end our, our sermon time because as we talk about matters of, of marriage, as we talk about matters of divorce, as we talk about in the coming weeks matters of celibacy and sexual immorality, and as we talk about such things, we quickly should come to the realization that, friends, we aren't just talking about them out there. We're talking about us in here. We all need forgiveness. We all have fallen short. We all need redemption. And that's why the first line of the statement, I think, is a, is a summary of the good news of the redemption of the gospel made possible by Jesus Christ. We say we believe that all have fallen sin and fallen short of the glory of God, but... Praise God. Therefore, redemption, forgiveness, and spiritual cleansing is available for not some sins, but for all sins.
Friends, let me be clear. There is no one either out there or in here who is too far gone for God's grace. No one has fallen so far short of God's standards in these areas that they cannot receive forgiveness of sins and spiritual cleansing. Let's close with one final passage, and it is also found in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you will, you can turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is one of my favorite passages on redemption. One of the best passages on the redemption of sexual sinners. And friends, we are all in that category. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Excuse me, did I say 9? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 9. In reading through verse 11. Paul writes, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then notice what he says in verse 11 to this Corinthian church and to all of us who have faith in Christ. And that is what some of you what? Were. Past tense. That is what some of you were. But, and here's the reality if we are Christians, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, we too as sexual sinners can be washed and sanctified, set apart to God, and we can be justified, we can be declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. When we come to know him personally, when we repent of our sins and are born again and trust in Christ and in Christ alone, and when that happens, we are not only forgiven of our sins, not only forgiven of all of the sins of our past, sexual and otherwise, but God does a miracle. He changes us. He changes our desires. He calls us to sexual purity as his children. And so to to these very same people, In Corinth, and friends, they had some messed up people in Corinth. Read the book. To these very same sexual sinners, turned saints, Paul says this in verse 18 through 20. Skipping ahead a few verses. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God? He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so what should we do? Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the thrust of what we mean by our our last sentence here. We will welcome into membership and endeavor to treat with respect, compassion, and sensitivity all who have practiced sinful behavior in the past. That's 1 Corinthians, the first section that we read but are now committed to resting, to resisting the temptation to engage in immoral acts. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Friends, those are our statements on marriage and divorce and redemption. In the words of this final statement, redemption, forgiveness, and spiritual cleansing is available for all sins. So let me ask you a question. As we transition to a time of worship and preparation for coming to the table, 
How do we know that redemption and forgiveness and spiritual cleansing is available for all sins? How can that be? We know that it's true because of what we are reminded of when we come to the table. We come to the table and we are reminded that that Christ's body, like the bread, was broken for us. And we are reminded when we come to the table that his blood was, was spilt for us. And we are reminded of what he did on the cross and the redemption and the forgiveness and the cleansing that is made available to us. So I'm going to ask one of our elders, Jay, to come pray for us. And we're going to prepare our hearts and mind to focus on the redemption and the cleansing and the forgiveness of sin that we have available through the cross as we are reminded of that, of that at the table. Come on, Jay. And we're going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team. We're going to sing a couple songs of redemption. And then if you are a Christian, then we invite you to the table to partake in the elements. Jay, why don't you grab a mic and, and pray for us.